So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to Trending. Tim Marie is off for the day. It's Brooke Taylor here with a great show lined up as we are taking care of business, just like Elvis's belt buckle. You remember that? I I think that's an old reference. I know it is. But when I was remembering that today, I looked it up and he, he had a necklace too. Elvis had a TCB, taking care of business with a lightning bolt necklace too. And that was his band. Anyway, I know it's a little bit of an old school, but we are we are going to literally be taking care of business today with our guest. Dave Durand is joining us for the hour. Of course, he has been a staple on Morning Air for many years with John Morales and Sarah and Glenn, and also now a brand new show every Saturday here on Relevant Radio. So we'll talk about that as well. I'll give you the scoop if you haven't already heard. So leadership, virtue, artificial intelligence in the job hunt and the landscape of the workplace. We will touch on all of that this hour. Dave Duran is an author and entrepreneur recognized as one of America's top 100 minds in the area of personal development and a three-time recipient of Glassdoor's Most Respected CEO Award. Grateful to welcome him to the program today. Hi, Dave. Hey, it's great to be with you, Brooke. Hey, good to talk to you. Thank you for being here. I also want to mention, as we jump in, the phone lines. The phone lines are open. Again, Dave with us for the hour, one 914 is the studio line if you have a question about taking care of business, leadership, navigating the job market. And uh, Dave, I want to guess, start with the basics, the foundational of work, a job, and the properly ordered understanding of career, because one of your great gifts and charisms is how we understand virtue as it relates to the human person and the gift of work and our gifts. So maybe because we don't see that modeled in the culture, a properly ordered understanding of work and career. So how should we best approach our livelihood and career where it's not an extreme? Yeah, that's a great question. By the way, I love that you played taking care of business. Uh, that song, just a weird fact for the audience, that song was supposed to be called White Collar Worker. And you can hear really? that White Collar Worker and taking care of business. Yeah, but they just thought that's not going to play well. I don't know. I just like to start off with pretty irrelevant information before I say the important <laughs> things. How does that sound, Brooke? I'm going to have so, to like um, picture them singing that now because that's that's uh, Bachman-Turner Overdrive, if you don't remember. It, it is, is. oldie. Yeah, right. But that's it is a good an only, and I think they made the right decision. By the way, <laughs> I think so too. We'll have to do a so, karaoke version of I, that. How about it? Well, you know, you asked a great question. There's a lot of things that people go into extremes about, and I think one of the reasons they go into this extreme here is that they they kind of separate work from what it is supposed to be, almost to the degree where you say, "Listen, you know, you can't be Catholic for one hour on Sundays. We're Catholic all week long, and we are supposed to." pray unceasingly. That's actually impossible to do like a monk, but it is very possible to enter into this conversation prayerfully, uh, for us to check our email with Christ in mind, 
to think, okay, if I'm going to be a good steward, I'm doing these things for a bigger purpose than just simply doing them. So when we do that, we have a little bit less confusion, a little less need to um, differentiate the two because we spend an enormous amount of time at work, even if we don't spend too much time at work. It's still a large portion of our life. And if we're using it as a means to express what it means to love Christ and to live a, a life of good stewardship, there really isn't that much of a differentiation when we come away from it. Now, what happens, though, is when our work becomes a God in and of itself, and we have a certain addiction to the results, or a certain addiction to the recognition, or a certain addiction to the advancement. But I also want to caution people, there's a reverse side of apathy, where people don't recognize there are seasons in life, where sometimes you have to work a little harder than you normally would, just in order to get to the place where you need to be. I want to go back to that when you talked about apathy, because I think that's huge, but also when you touch on the purpose and motivation of what we do and how it can get enmeshed and intertwined. And my heart is really for this lately because anyone who's experienced a struggle with their career, my husband, uh, after 23 years of marriage and you know our family, our, our five children, this actually happened to us for the first time last year. My husband was laid off through no fault of his own. He was at a startup and they had run out of funding and it's overwhelming. And I would particularly say, I mean, I think for anyone who loses a job, whatever the circumstance is, it's a challenge. But when you're the primary breadwinner, of course, too. And, and this is where I see the grace of temperance so beautifully come alive because it is an emotional roller coaster. All of a sudden, you have to look at immediate financials. How are you going to get through this? How long will it be this way? There's a lot of waiting and hoping, preparing, disappointment if something doesn't pan out. And so I think that is such, we, you know, really try to approach it not with fear, like a lot of things, if it's a health diagnosis or a sudden trauma where you you just, you are so almost like in a concussion state, but to be rooted back again, that's where the beauty of the sacraments, our church, our virtue, because they remind us of what is real and true and what, and not to be, you know, to be detached, I guess. Uh, but that's very difficult when you're in the midst of it. And I think going back to what you said about our purpose of work, one of the things that I think he felt was, you know, you give so much to a job, but then you feel like, well, it didn't give back. But jobs don't reciprocate human value. So they don't consider such things, maybe a person or a boss, but the job is just a transactional position we hold until we don't. So I guess maybe some tips or things you've learned in coaching and and mentoring people as far as what to happen you know, how to approach that process of navigating when the rug is ripped out from underneath you and you lose a job. Yeah, what a great, first of all, I, you know, I, I understand that things have gotten to where you need them to be there, which is excellent. And unsurprising when you've got a good person, it always ends up being that way. It comes around to, you know, finding that next job. Yeah. But it's interesting, even very hireable people who have great track records can still experience that fear because it's an uncertain thing. So there are a couple of things that I always try to help people do when they're in that circumstance. First of all, when you take action, and, and by the way, great people are people who are patient in all things, but wait for nothing. And that's a very important principle. Mm. Uh, a person who's like in perpetual discernment, what should I do? Where should I work? But they're not really taking action is a person who's eventually going to have a lot of anxiety. But when you take action on something, it actually reduces anxiety. So doing something is important. I, I even tell some people if it has, if it lasts too long, 
You should find a job that you don't necessarily love in order to do something while you're figuring out what it is you're going to do. Because otherwise you learn to become more apathetic and you become a little bit softer. Now, there's a practical side of that which makes it a little bit difficult. If you are very actively seeking and you need the time to find the job, that's different. It's the person who's kind of like sitting around while they're finding the job. So that's kind of one part to it. But you also said something I really like, that that distinction. Okay, so the job itself is a thing. It's like a company. is an It's an entity, but it doesn't have... Well, actually, it's interesting. It has not a real soul, but it has the soul or, or really the, the essence of the, the top leader there. And this is a very important thing. That top leader in organization will send a message of what it means to work there through the rest of the organization. And the people who are reciprocating that or receiving that message and then extending it out further will actually be the people that care. But ultimately speaking, our vocation is not a job. Our vocation is a calling which can move from job to job. Unlike our vocation in a family, which marriage is marriage, but what happens is, you you know, the vocation of being married before you have kids is different than the vocation when you have kids, which is different than when they move out, which is different when you're a grandparent, or if one of the spouses ends up dying, you have now a different orientation of the same vocation. That's a, that's a way of looking at jobs in relationship to the vocation aspect of the work we do. Yeah, I'm thinking of priests as well, all the different assignments, but it's still the same vocation. And through our lives, like you're saying, you move through different assignments. Uh, kind of a nuts and bolts question that I think you would be really good and well-equipped to answer is, I guess, still on that topic of the job hunt, is ChatGPT or all of those kind of machine learning uh, AI tools, that increasingly is playing a role in all sorts of resume enhancements and optimization and identifying potential matches for corporations. How do we navigate that? I guess what I mean is recruiters, hiring managers, prioritizing um, job matching technologies over maybe evaluating the whole person. Is that something we need to be aware of or is the human person always going to trump an algorithm? <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. But what do you see? Yeah, this is a very big one. I, I do spend time on this with a lot of people. Right now, um, about half of all companies or HR uh, professionals are saying they use AI in the recruiting process. And it's just going to grow from there. Um, there's an upside and a downside to it. And you can speak to this from the side of the recruiter. What's the upside? Well, you can be efficient, all these different types of things. But then also you can speak to it on the candidate side. Um, I, I'm going to start kind of with the bad news, and then I want to move into the good news. The bad news is that it's actually used as a discriminatory, a discriminatory tool quite often, um, but under the guise of not being a tool of discrimination. In other words, it sets a tone for a lot of the, the DEI movement um, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and what happens, inclusion, is what happens is it, it reverse discriminates. Basically, if you are a, particularly if you're a white male Christian, you're out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we have no room for them anymore. They've done nothing to help society and, and they're the worst, you know, they're the most unprotected species on planet Earth. I happen mm-hmm. to be one. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is something that is real. It's a real, uh, a real thing. And, but what they say is, well, it allows the recruiter to overcome their bias. And it really doesn't. What it does is it tells the recruiter to ignore the actual things that makes a person great at their job and to, and to do actually a reverse discrimination in order to eliminate some candidates just based 
on their gender or their race. And that is actually discrimination. But in today's weird woke society, they're going to, they're going to tout it differently. That's the bad news side of it. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on that. And then there are a few other uh, mild bad news things. But then I want to teach people how to not be afraid of it and how to engage it as opposed to feel like, oh, no, I'm just going to be victimized by it. Well, that, I think, was a shocking uh, kind of drinking out of a fire hose moment of, and, and I say we a lot because uh, I'm, I'm, as you mentioned, grateful to say, thanks be to God, my husband was able to find a great job, an amazing job. But it definitely was a very trying trial uh, that it was almost a classroom, a master class in how to navigate this and to see how AI, and, and for those that don't know, basically there are services you can buy or some are free, like again, ChatGPT, and you feed the resume through. And then there are uh, websites also that help to match jobs and make sure that you're saying the right things There are keywords. It's not definitely the old school where you had something, I don't know, just that you circled the want ads in the news paper that seems so antiquated now it is and there's almost like a hidden job market and trying to tap into that and it might sound paranoid or over the top but it really is an entire science which makes sense why there are recruiters and executive coaches and things like that because especially at a certain level it's really extraordinary and it makes sense because this is a serious career that you're trying to get. But just how quickly and pervasive AI has seemed to play a role. So, but yet also, um, I guess the the fact that you have to keep up because these things are always going to be changing. Yeah, you do. But the, the interesting thing about the candidate, the candidate really can't keep up with this. It's right. the recruiter that keeps up with it. The candidate just kind of has to deal with it. And then what happens is um, w- when they start to use algorithms that uh, are, you know, re- recruiting is interesting. You have two different things. You've got what do you know, what is your experience, and what do you bring to the table? And then you have how are you as a cultural fit? Um, right. If the algorithms were written exclusively that way, then you would be hiring the best candidates all the time. But they are actually quite often written to an agenda, in which case, once a person starts to realize it's written to an agenda, now that what they have to do is they have to alter um, the basis of who they are and what's important to them in order to meet the algorithm's ability to pick up words to meet that agenda. Right. But some of the tools are actually pretty um, pretty sophisticated in that they're going to read your face, they're going to read the the intono- intonation or in, uh, the intonations that you have. They're going to read a lot of different things about you that will tell them, you know, things like sincerity. One of the things that they cannot do, though, is they can't identify virtue. And this is something that I've said for many years before AI was out there. I said, listen, you can take Myers-Briggs tests and everything else, and they're good. They do a lot of good, but they cannot measure virtue. They make attempts to measure it, but you generally find that out once a person's in the role. And that's, that's one of the things that a computer cannot generally do as good as a, an experienced recruiter who can ask really good questions to kind of penetrate history in order to determine the future. That's so beautiful. And it's this God-given superpower <laughs> that all we have to do is develop it and work on it. And what's amazing about that is the more we do, the more in, it endows flourishing in ourselves and others, which is so beautiful. And I want to zero in on that more. We have to take a quick break. Again, Dave Durant, 
with us for the hour, one 9149 is the studio line if you have a question about leadership, navigating the job market, a startup, motivation, get late 9149 author entrepreneur dave durand is here of course an old friend here on relevant radio john morales sarah and glenn on morning air frequently heard on the morning show and now host of a new show here every saturday 1 p.m central on Relevant Radio, Dave Duran. And phone lines are open here for the rest of the hour on trending, talking about all things leadership, workplace motivation. Timory's off for today. It's Brooke Taylor here working on some connection issues. Hopefully we're full steam ahead and just so glad to be with you. I'll be here today and for the next few days on trending again. The studio line is open, one 914 if you have a question for Dave. And Dave, before the break, you had touched on a little bit of acedia or apathy or complacency in the job. And I wanted to ask about that because I guess like anything, when you first start out, there is that natural zeal, whether that is newly in love or maybe a new home or a new job. Maybe you're new to the faith or back to the faith. There's like this honeymoon period. And then after a while, the luster wears off and sometimes we can get complacent. We have to work at it. So like our own jobs, how can we maybe if we've kind of gotten to that point where it does feel like drudgery or we're not really happy, we're struggling to find the joy and wake up and do that job. What approach would you suggest to maybe seeing it with different eyes and help breathe new joy into the job? Or is that a sign maybe it's time to do something else? Yeah, that's a great question. And the whole idea of Asidia or what's considered the noonday, de- the noonday devil, right, as the monks used to say, yep. is a very real thing. And it does kind of hit in that kind of early afternoon for a lot of people where maybe the gumption that they had earlier in the day starts to kind of move away and they start to lose their focus. And that can happen a lot in today's world, too, with social media and all of the different stimulation that we can get from our phones and everything else. So it's very important for us to stay focused. And I think one of the things that happens is, in fact, I was just working with somebody the other day. They said, I have, I have dissatisfaction in my job. And, um, as a result of that, some apathy. And they, they said, do you think I should change careers? This is a very high level executive. And I said, well, let's talk about the rest of your life. And he said, okay. And I said, what, what, what desires do you have in the rest of your life that you think you would get fulfillment out of? He goes, well, I feel like I, I should help a church more. I mean, if I could visit like a hospital too and talk to kids, that would be meaningful. And I just started getting in shape, but you know, um, I was raised Catholic, but I, I don't really, I'm not really in touch with my faith and all these different types of things. And he basically talked about a lot of his life being out of order. And I said, okay, you know, listen, there are four levels of happiness that people go through. The first is physical. They eat, drink, smoke, anything physical in order to grab at least relief right away. And if these things are basically in order, you're going to be fine in your life. But if we have disordered physical attachments, physical things that we do to find happiness, then we're just going to lead ourselves to destruction and sin even, you know, gluttony in all sorts of forms, lust, whatever. The second thing people do is they they go after accomplishment. They try to, you know, earn money, win awards, write books, whatever it might be. And they realize they're happy longer from that. 
And by the way, we need all of the levels. I am, I'm hungry and you're serving me food and that will make me happy. Great. Okay. Well, that's good. And it's an order. But we realize we can't eat enough, drink enough, do anything like that. We can't accomplish enough to have ultimate happiness. So then we go philanthropic. We want to give. We realize we can't eat enough, drink enough, accomplish enough, or give enough. And then we ultimately have this existential dissatisfaction. We want to know, hey, where did I come from? Where am I going? And we have to wrestle with that reality. So the reason I say this is because if a person hasn't actually found the proper satisfaction that they're supposed to find in an ordered way in each one of these, they're going to start looking in the wrong places to find it. And way too often, people are dissatisfied with their job because they're dissatisfied with themselves. And if they were actually satisfied with who they were, they would actually be more satisfied in their work. Now, it doesn't always mean that. Sometimes we have our life together and we're unhappy with what we do. And there is a, there's a, there's a goodness to that because sometimes God's telling you it is time to move on. You've outgrown this and you should explore something else. But other times it's kind of a, a trick. And we have to just, you know, ask ourselves patiently and through prayer while we're in the state of the great, uh, state of grace, is there something more I can learn here? Am I leaving because I'm afraid? And at the end of the day, Brooke, here's what I tell people. Don't run from something, run to something. If all you want to exit, all you want to do is to exit, it's not the time to go. You have to know where it is you want to go before you make that decision and use the time in that role to decide that. And it's a better option. It's so good because earlier in the show, you talked about if you are in limbo in a waiting place, that it's it's always good to still be active in a way. Of course, we can always be active in our interior life, and that is the most fundamental, foundational part, because this is where we are disposed to hear our Lord calling us and discern what's next. But you said when you're kind of just sitting there, you're more likely to get anxiety, and it's good to be patient, but just not to wait and wait. And then here, you, you know, it's the same thing where if there is a restlessness, it doesn't mean that you're being impulsive or you're jumping, but you're discerning, you're examining. And all of that does go back to the spiritual life and growth. And I just think that's a really beautiful reminder that as long as we're working on our interior life, there's progress and there are going to be things revealed to us. Yeah, there are. And I think one of the things too that's important is that Silence is a very good, I mean, this is like, uh, there's, there's really no debate to this. There's no, yeah, but at all. It's, this is a full statement. Silence is very good to listen to God's voice. In addition to that though, and I think this is the most important thing, you can't hear the voice of someone you don't know. And you can't hear the voice of someone you don't talk to. So when we increase the amount of conversation we have with God in a regular sense, and I do mean that, I mean, definitely formal prayer, obviously mass, adoration, rosaries, these types of things. Absolutely. But what's funny is that quite often we want advice about a business decision and we walk down the hall and we ask Bob or we ask Katie or something like that. Good idea. Okay. And we should. But what's really funny is that kind of metaphorically or image wise, God has an office there too. God created the world, knows you exactly, made you for a purpose, holds your very existence together by his thought, and somehow you're going to skip God to go to talk to Bob. I don't think that you should not talk to Bob, but I think you should talk to God at least on your way. (laughs) And that's going to help very much too. And it also brings us back to the cardinal virtues, which are the natural virtues. They're not the ones that have anything to do with whether or not we're in the state of grace. The natural virtues, the cardinal virtues, 
they're the ones that we can use just as natural human beings, which is why you see people who are clearly not in the state of grace, objectively speaking, God only knows, but objectively speaking, yet they can be successful. They can make good decisions. They can actually have a sense of justice. They can have fortitude. They can have temperance. Why? Because they're natural. And if we exercise these natural virtues, they allow for us to grow closer to the idea of God because the natural virtues are ordered in truth. And the more we have an appeal to them, the more we have an attraction to them, the more we ultimately know there's something more to life than just those. That's so good. Dave Durand is with us for the hour. If you have a question, anything about work, leadership, uh, motivation, entrepreneurial question as well, one 914 and just wanted to ask also about examination of conscience as we're talking about justice and, and the natural virtues. And there's a particular examination for conscience for moms that is for their station in life. And I really appreciate that. Of course, the Ten Commandments, they always cover it all. But there are some things that might not dawn on you until you read this particular vocational related examination that it's like, oh, yeah, I need to work on that. And I think maybe there it would be good to have like a corporate <laughs> examination of conscience because that's one thing too. And for maybe those that are just joining the conversation, sharing a little bit about our own story, our family story, that for the first time last year, my husband had experienced a job layoff and thankfully he he is hired now. But through navigating that process, one observation we noticed is how often we would hear like high level executives and maybe after a third, fourth or fifth round interview where someone would give their word and they would say, we'll be in touch by the end of the day. We'll call you by the end of the week, the following week. But then they would just totally ghost, ghost the candidate. And I know sometimes candidates ghost the employer as well or the hiring manager. And I wonder how common that is. And again, people are busy. Our time is fragmented and there's a lot of things vying for our attention. We all forget to respond. But sometimes at high levels, there are general courtesies when you give your word that it's like, I am surprised how often that happens. Do you find that in, in work culture that, you know, there are these things that we don't see that kind of maybe can chip away at our conscience? Is that common or it just depends on the culture? Oh, no, it's abundantly common. Actually, ironically, I'm writing a book on confession. Most of my books are are corporate books, leading, you know, how to lead, et cetera. But I'm writing a book on confession um, that's going to come out this year. And we were were just actually working through the examination of conscience today. And I I gave some workplace exam. It's not for uh, working people necessarily. It's, It's for everyone. But, um, but the, the thing that I said is, listen, there's, there's gotta be a portion of this that says, am I working hard? I, I am, I am given a particular compensation and there is an, there's a spirit of exchange of what I should be contributing to receive that money. And if I am not honoring the spirit of that agreement, I'm stealing. Like things like that. When you think about, you know, a mother's conscience, but there's also employers, but also for, for employees, but also for employers. You know, what are you demanding from people? Are you asking them to make the, the hay or the, the, the bricks without straw? What are you doing here uh, in order to, to, to get something done? And in recruiting, it happens all the time. You know, listen, I, I tell you, I'm a fan of business. I think a lot of people like to criticize it. They like to say, oh, you know, anybody that rises to the top or if you build a business, you've got to be, you know, you know ruthless and uh, all these people are dishonest. I've seen enough crazy things and enough dishonest people to know that they're there. But by and large, to build a great organization, there have to be more good principles taking place than bad. Uh, a lot of times it's a mix of things. 
So I want to be fair to the business community because I'm in it too. I mean, I build companies. That's what I do. But at the same time, I am never shocked by the quantity of lying that takes place by people. Whether it's self-justification, whether it's weakness, whether or not they don't know how to deliver actual honest hard news to somebody in a compassionate way. So they just lie and then they run away. It happens all the time. And my dad, uh, when I was a young man, uh, said something great to me. I was kind of uh, complaining about some of these types of things that I was dealing with in uh, an organization that I was in when I was in my early 20s. And I was talking about somebody who, you know, had this long history of lying. And I was just kind of talking about the latest lie and da-da-da-da. And he looked at me and he said, he said, what do you expect? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes... What do you expect from that person? You know you're going to get that, and you act shocked every time it happens. It's like shaking a can of soda and putting your face two inches in front of it and opening it and being shocked that it sprays all over you. You have to know this is the way that person is. And if you remove the shock from it, and you have a certain expectation for it, and I didn't have the power at the time to fire this person because I didn't have that control. I was more of a peer. He said, you are going to reduce any sort of emotional um, anxiety that goes with it because it's kind of expected and you just work around it. And it was really brilliant advice. It was like, well, what do you expect? Liars lie. That's why they're called liars. <laughs> I was like, wow, that you made it simple. <laughs> yeah. And it does make you wonder how long that colleague can carry on that way, because once you really lose credibility to that level, it's hard to really trust anything that they say that's going to you know, have truth so that's that can be really lethal yeah it can and you know frankly they don't last long one of the things that i have noticed you know i'm 54 years old uh so i've been you know running companies now since i was you know 20 uh 19 so you know for 35 years now and i have seen a change in the level of narcissism this is one thing that i have that you know a lot of people like to talk about the old generation the new generation and i i I've always kind of looked at that aside because it's kind of like a rite of passage to talk about how your generation is the best and the next one upcoming is not so great, et cetera, et cetera. It's true. But there, there are some real things that have actually changed. When you have a society that can, that turns their camera on themselves and takes relentless numbers of pictures to post the perfect one. I mean, when I was a kid, if you saw somebody turn a camera on themselves, you would have thought they were mentally ill. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, you would have really found that to be incredibly bizarre behavior, not normal behavior. And when you do it constantly, you don't realize how sick you're becoming. And narcissism happens for one of two reasons, generally speaking. One is maybe a person was harmed as a child and there are certain things that didn't connect in their mind and it's a tragic, sad thing. And God knows their culpability, which is why God's in charge of who goes to heaven and not. But there are also people who become narcissistic because they have a radical high level of self-indulgence, self-aggrandizement, self-attention oriented things. And they learn the habit of it. And, and this is difficult because they, they, you know, psychologists will say this is unhealable. Now God can heal all things, but on a natural level, it's a very difficult one. And when you are around a narcissist, you will, it is no longer necessary for you to hope they're going to change because, you know, maybe in a relationship, a personal relationship, that's a different thing. You always hold out hope. But in the workplace, you just move on from them. And it's important to just move on from them. So there's a time to be compassionate and understanding. And even in that circumstance, you would do it, but you sever the relationship because it won't go anywhere. And we have to become savvy to that. 
Yeah, and it it takes us right back to the original, the primary, uh, the pride, pride and humility, and yeah, that's really interesting. I had not heard, although maybe I have, but I'm that it's really one of the most difficult things to reform, I suppose. So you're saying that if you do encounter someone, just to kind of avoid and know that that kind of like the person your your dad gave you the advice that that's just what you're going to be working with, essentially. Yeah, and I would say two things. All of us can have a certain level of narcissism, and all of us can have a narcissistic moment, just like all people can lie. The difference between a narcissist and a liar versus a person who will, you know, has lied or is capable of lying is that the liar lives that way. That's just how they go about it. They just basically say, hey, listen, I, the, the truth is only a convenience thing for me, uh, but otherwise I just lie whenever. Okay, that's a liar. A narcissist is a person who, who can't help themselves. They are just in it that way, not a person who has a weak moment. And so we can't just say, oh, there was a moment that took place, therefore I'm casting full judgment on this person as unchangeable. There, there, there have to be patterns over a period of time that help us understand these things. And we have to be careful not to just throw names or, or, or labels, especially not being professional therapists and psychologists. Right, right. We just have to use kind of like a prudential, experiential decision-making process to know when is when and how much is too much in a particular relationship before you just say, this is a view not worth the climb and move on. Right. Yeah. And there again, that goes back to a well-formed conscience and prudence and, uh, you know, j- charity for sure. I want to take Mary. She is on the line calling us from Los Angeles and uh, in a similar boat. Welcome to the program. Hi, Mary. Hi. Um, you know, it's weird. I don't usually listen to you at this hour and as I'm driving home and I and you may have covered some of this, but um, so my husband over 55 or both over 55. Um, works in, you know, business systems, usually high level jobs, but has been in this kind of contract worker thing. And so works a few years, is laid off and he's laid off now. And we need that extra income. And I feel that he's doing what he can, but you know, there are arguments because I'm thinking, can you do more? What can you do? I think he's frustrated. He does the LinkedIn. He's like, well, I have to hold out for something that's, you know, going to be what we need. And I don't really want him to go work minimum wage, but I just, it is a very frustrating situation. And I'm, you know, trying to be feeling faith, praying to Jesus, trusting, but it is, it's, it's hard as a spouse to continue to live in. Everything you're saying, my, I am just nodding in agreement because it's so fresh for, for our own family. And Dave, I want to, obviously, I don't mean to interject. I want you to be able to, um, No, I would ask you, I was going to say, Brooke, you're, you're so highly qualified, especially contemporarily to actually address this. You should go for it. Well, you know, there's a few things that, that Mary said right away that you said, Mary, and that was the age because when you're, not just out of college and you just are single and you have your degree. And I, that comes with its own set of challenges, but it can be scary because on one hand, you're so qualified. You have years and decades of expertise that really, as you were talking about, Dave, you talk about generationally, what a tremendous wealth that anyone over 35, 40 brings because of how things used to be done. That still is very valuable. These soft skills and yet you also feel scared because you command a certain salary that seems like it's elusive and 
things have changed so much. So there is so much to navigate, and that's definitely a challenge. One thing I would say, Mary and, and Dave, I, we didn't get a chance to touch on this yet, and I know we're up against a break soon, is the importance of reaching out to networks. And Mary, you might be thinking, my husband has done that a million times because I know for my husband, Jim, it was amazing how many people that he reached out to, but people also that came out of the woodwork and were praying. And that does give you a boost when you reconnect with people that you know believe in you and you believe in them and you say, I can look back and I have some really valuable contacts here. I really think that's um, really worthwhile, don't you, Dave? I do agree with that. And, you know, there, there's, I think there's two things happening here. One is, for the man himself in this particular, because we're talking about the man actually looking for the job and then right. the woman being supportive in this particular role. Sometimes those things are reversed, but there's, there's the way that a man receives that support is very interesting. It, it is very true. And a lot of men won't say this, but they, they really do operate much more effectively with a cheerleader than a, 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 a physical trainer. Uh, one more rep, Bob, go for it is not really what the guy needs. (laughs) He needs, you can do it. I believe in you. And that can get hard when you start to wonder if they can do it. (laughs) And if you do believe in them, which is a real thing. But I always just want, want women to know if you really want your guy to be there, don't be worried that the cheerleading side of this is going to cause apathy because you know, he feels affirmed. It's not, it's going to get him to move. He's going to want to shut down if he feels something else. Now, that's that that that's kind of a sad reality of the situation, but it's knowing human nature to a certain degree. So I just want one point to it. The other side of it is this: I I will definitely say to him if I talk to him, I'd say, "Listen, you have you have to know your value is exceedingly beyond what you probably think." That's so good. Yes. Yes, it, it is so true. What usually happens now is a confident person is beaten down. And they start to believe that they don't have the value. So yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't by any stretch of imagination say, so one of my kids is graduating from college. He's graduating a, f- a four year graduate. His starting job out of college with a, just a bachelor's degree, $115,000 with a company car and three weeks vacation. Wow. Okay. Why is that important to know? Because that blows the mind of somebody in their fifties that a person out of school would get that. But I want you to ratchet that up. And know that people are probably paying more than you would expect for the for what you actually have to bring to the table. Yep. And don't apologize for it. Know that you get what you offer. And he is probably a Ferrari, and the Ferrari is expensive because it's very high quality. He's not a used, you know, Chevy with rust all over it. And you, so he has to confidently enter into that without with with with, and that's super important to do from a humble perspective, which is mean precision truth about yourself. When I see guys in particular go through this though, they usually start to think that they're not worth what they are and they need to amp it up. Yeah, that's really good. We have to take a break. Mary, are you still there? I'm still here. Yes. Have you told your husband he's a Ferrari? No, but I'm going, (laughs) I'm going to do that. I love that. I see see how he reacts. I think that's fantastic and just uh, such a beautiful note of encouragement. We all we all need that. That and beautiful. Thank you, Dave. We'll be right back. Dave Durand is here, and the phone lines are open. One triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. It's Brooke Taylor in for Timory. We'll be right back here on trending. Stay with us.
We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. One week ago, we began our Lenten journey. We had Ash Wednesday. We're now officially one week into Lent. If you want a transformative Lent for you and your family, watch Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass, bite-sized glimpses into every prayer, word from the sign of the cross to the final blessing. Such a beautiful series. All you need to do is visit relevantradio.com slash Lent. Also, tomorrow on the program, Bree Dale is a Catholic journalist, a correspondent for the Daily Wire, and up until very recently was in Rome. She is back. She will be here on the program tomorrow to talk about prudence in processing and consuming news, how we can spot fake news, how a well-formed conscience is necessary to navigate so much moral relativism, especially in an election year. So she will be on with us tomorrow again. It's Brooke Taylor in for Timory for the next few days. And for the next few minutes, we are joined by Dave Durand. He's been with us and our phone lines are lighting up. I know we're short on time, Dave. So I want to get to Martha. She's been patient in holding from Arizona. Martha, you had a question about a workplace. Uh, you're on with Dave. Hi. Yes, hi. Hello, hi. Dave. I, I've heard you speak before, and uh, so many times I, when the opportunities came, I didn't have them to talk. But um, I am in a very sensitive position um, in the city of, or in Arizona, I should say, for um, the Catholic Diocese. And the organization that I work with is a major organization with the diocese. Um, and I work with one other person and a manager. And the situation is, and this has happened several times, several times. And I think for now, I think, okay, I'm a Catholic woman. I want to exhibit as much of being a good Catholic woman as I can, but in many different times um, in the years that I have worked, I work with non-Catholics and as management, and especially right now, I am working under a manager who really, um, I don't want to use a strong word, but strongly dislikes the Catholic faith and has made it very open to myself and another employee that I work with um, to the extent that um, they were moving a crucifix from one wall to the other and by me because the remark was, I don't care for the Catholic faith, I don't like the Catholic faith, and I'm not going to look at something when Christ has been resurrected. So, in many ways, we don't pray. I don't mean to cut you short, but... I'm looking okay. at our time. Is is your is so? It sounds to me like the question is, how do you deal with that? Is that what you're wondering with Dave? Right. I deal with offering it up, with shutting mm-hmm. our mouth, with not saying anything, even though we we are almost completely ignored. You know, you say good morning, and no one says good morning. It's like morning. So it's a very difficult situation. Um, but I have worked for many, many years for the organization, and I look at it as uh, something obedient, that this is what we are called to, the work we do. Okay, I think we lost Martha. I'm sorry. Dave, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, so I think that was the gist, and it sounds like a very tough uh, challenge for her across to bear for sure. How would you advise that? 
So I would say two things. One is because there's a lot of information I didn't have. I, I would also just caution, uh, caution people that work in Catholic institutions to make sure that they're not ever working with people within their organization who are trying to work against it. It's one of the biggest reasons that we have problems in the church. And sadly, there are many people who work against the church and are most effective when they're actually inside it. So let's just not be silly and think that it's a Christ-like thing to be open to all people. No, if you hire somebody to help row your boat and they start trying to sink the boat, you've hired the wrong person. Just And I, a, and a I guess too, note. Dave, going back to your point when it comes to virtue, that goes to the virtue of justice, really, right? Oh, my goodness. Prudence, justice, uh, and, and then you could have like, all of the sub-virtues underneath those and do an entire seminar on the lack of prudence that that is, that is required to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yes, a, a, whole, a whole show we could do. Now, as far as the role that you have there, um, if, if it only extends to, and this is hard to believe that it would, but if it only extends to they're a little bit difficult to work with and they won't look at you because of your beliefs, um, you know, maybe you kind of put up to it uh, with it to to a certain degree, but it probably doesn't. It probably extends into the mission itself. In which case, what good are we silently sitting in that mission and putting up with something when it has a, a bigger effect across the board? So this is a time to really kind of go and examine the situation and say, how can I and intellectualize this? By the way, not emotionalize it. How can I intellectually make a change here that will allow for people to see what is taking place so that this can be corrected and changed? Now, we don't have that. That's a radio answer. If we had more time, we could get into it more, but I'll stop there. Well, and in addition to your entire library of books, which I would recommend, and I have two right here. I know I need to get more. These are my older ones, but Win the World Without Losing Your Soul. That's a Dave Duran book. Say this, not that. I have that one too. But I would also recommend in your library, Martha, and for anybody, Stefan Cardinal Wazinski. He's a blessed. All You Who Labor, Work and the Sanctification of Daily Life is a great book. But exactly to what Martha was saying, Dave, he talks about how our Lord first called the apostles who were fishermen. They were brave men. They had storms at sea and then how kind of the boat turns into the church. And for all of us, we are faced with challenges and we have to rise up and glorify God in what we do. And the way that he's able to articulate and transmit that truth is really beautiful. So I would recommend that. And of course, again, all your books and your show. So as we wrap up, can you tell us how to connect with you and where to find you? Yeah, great. Thanks. It's been just a real pleasure to be with you here tonight, uh, Brooke, you as too. well, too. Um, you know, you can go to my YouTube channel um, and uh, also to leadinggiants.com. Uh, it's easy to get a hold of me uh, through those resources there, too. We've got all sorts of great guests on there. But I really love the fact that the audience for the Dave Duran Show is building because there's nothing really more fun for me than when I can put the entire context of what it means to be a good and faithful servant in the workplace uh, under what it means to be Catholic as well, too. So uh, I, I also want to thank uh, everybody at Relevant Radio for all that they do to continue to make sure that great, relevant information is being shared on the air. And you know this, Brooke, just like I know it. You could be walking along someplace at an airport or some sort of an event and not think that you would have known anyone there, and they hear your voice and they say, hey, are you from Relevant Radio? Because that's changed my life. And uh, the work yeah. is great because of that. Yes. 
praise be to God. And this vineyard, you know, we talk about the apostles in the boat. We are all, <laughs> we're all working, we're all in the vineyard, and we're grateful for it. Thank you for what you do. And I know that your email, Dave, at leadinggiants.com. And also, of course, we can hear you every Saturday at 1 here on Relevant Radio. Dave Duran, thank you so much. God bless you. Thanks, Brooke. And the rosary, the family rosary across America, of course, is next. Today is Wednesday, so that means the glorious mysteries. We lift up everyone who is struggling, who is out of work. Uh, St. Joseph, pray for us. Thank you, Jim. Patrick Alog on the phones. It's Brooke Taylor. God bless you.